Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class, 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. Where does the activist historian come from? We'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that, but when you purchase courses there, you keep this podcast free of charge. You can also go to brianmcclanahan.com, click on the support button, or you can go to Spotify for podcasters and become a member there. You can also click on the little heart button if you're watching on YouTube, the super thanks button. All those are great ways to support the show financially. Also, buying merchandise, click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com, get my logo on all kinds of cool stuff, buy one of my books. Again, all great ways to keep the show free of charge. But, as always, Rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast so people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. That does help get more eyes and ears on the show. Comment on YouTube for the algorithm and send me those show requests. All right. One of the big questions we have today, of course, is where does this activist historian come from? Now, if you go back and look at historiography or historians in general, historians tend to be a pretty rambunctious bunch in terms of what they like to do. Now, if you go back to, say, the Roman historians and you look at someone like Augustus who was commissioning historians to write a sympathetic view of the Roman past, of the old Roman Republic, and trying to revitalize that old Roman spirit, you certainly have what you might call a state historian, someone who was interested, uh, if you look at uh, how the detractors would say it, in myths of the past or uh, maybe telling a little bit of a half-truth. That's often what's described by those who would support the status quo. You see, they only like to tell you the good stuff and they leave all the muckraking out of it. So certainly you have those kind of historians. And uh, someone like yours truly would be accused of being that, at least when it comes to tradition, of, uh, of leaving out the bad stuff, right? Which I don't do, but anyways... So we have, uh, we have this perception of historians as maybe actors for the state, maybe actors for the traditional society, maybe actors for those in power, right? Those who have had traditionally uh, powerful roles in society. And then, of course, you have historians who are interested in muckraking, right? Turning over things, seeing things for what they supposedly are. And you see this all throughout American history. I mean, if you look at, for example, Mercy Otis Warren, who was one of the first real American historians uh, to point to the flaws of the Federalists. I mean, this is why John Adams wrote that women shouldn't write history. Mercy Otis Warren, who I wrote about in 
the politically incorrect guide to real American heroes, is an interesting story. Here is this New England woman, a very strong Jeffersonian, who writes a history that bashes the Federalists and talks about how they've distorted the true American war for independence. Now, notice what's going on there, though. Even though she's criticizing those in power, what she's saying is that what they're doing in centralizing power, what they're doing in distorting the original intent of the Constitution, what they're doing in ruining Jeffersonian republicanism, I shouldn't call it that, but really republicanism, is a distortion of what the American War for Independence was about. In other words, they have usurped the original meaning of the war, which was independence and decentralization. It is a fascinating history. So you have a woman... A woman on the outside looking at this, this power structure, looking at what was happening in Washington, D.C. and around the United States and saying this is not a preservation of what we fought for. In other words, these people are innovators. These people are reformers. These people are using constitutional machinations to change America. So in some ways you could say she wasn't really a muckraker, what Mercy Otis Warren was, was a traditionalist. And you find that a lot of women, as historians, tended to be that. They tended to be traditionalists, at least for a while. By the And, and this gets into American historiography. I won't even focus on what happened somewhere else. But by the middle of the 19th century, you see a shift. You start seeing a group of women who other women would criticize... Uh, start to push your reform in all kinds of ways. Uh, they were denigrated as a group of people called the blue stockings. And what that meant was that these women would forego having children. They would forego traditional roles in society. They would forego all the things that women were supposed to do so they could sit around and talk and write books and be lonely. I mean, <laughs> this is kind of how they, how they were described by other women. And there's a really interesting exchange on this. And there were, there were many women in the South in particular who spoke of rabble-rousing women this way. But one was Augusta Jane Evans Wilson, who wrote a very famous book entitled St. Elmo. And in that book, uh, she, and I say it's very famous because in 1866, when the book was published, it was a bestseller. But in that book, she is highly critical of these kind of women. Now, uh, Augusta Jane Evans at that time, not Wilson yet, but Augusta Jane Evans, was highly educated. Uh, she grew up in Alabama, and she was certainly someone who uh, understood writing. Had I mean, if you read her books, you need a dictionary at hand because of. I mean, she's going to reference things you might have never even heard of before. She was well versed in uh, ancient history and classical history. And this was not unusual for people that read a lot at the time. But what she does do in that book is criticize these reforming-type women, the blue stockings. She's very critical of them. She thinks that they're dangerous for American society because they are rejecting, like petulant children in many ways, everything that offers them protection in society, everything that offers them stability in society, and everything that would make society better. Everything that allows society to work. They are perpetual teenagers who don't like the fact that uh, there is 
a, a structure and an order that they want that doesn't fit what they think society should be. So that is uh, a type of historian, Augusta Jane Evans. She was a historian, even though she's writing fiction. She's still a historian, and she did write some really interesting uh, books during the war. So that that notion of what the left has become, right, the progressive left in the 19th century, right, these are people that would be Lincolnians. She's talking about Republicans in the 19th century. She's talking about uh, people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton or Susan B. Anthony. These are the kind of people she, she is certainly aware of. Now, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton are different people in, in many ways. Uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton considered herself to be a mother first and foremost. What she wanted was the ability for women to have a political role. And this is something, of course, that even uh, Evans, Evans Wilson, was highly critical of. She didn't think that uh, women should have a political role. They already controlled society because they, they were mothers. And that was, see, that, that's the understanding of the traditional role where mothers did control society because they controlled their children. Uh, and they reared their children. They taught them certain things. And this is where we're going to get into this petulant children thing in a minute. So uh, someone like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, though, thought, thought that women should have some type of political role. They should be able to vote. But that's really where it stopped with Stanton. And if you look at uh, you know some of the things that they that eventually the women's movement would embrace. Stanton wasn't necessarily on board with those. Uh, now Susan B. Anthony certainly was, and Susan B. Anthony was more like the blue stocking that that uh, Augusta Jane Evans would talk about. You know, never married, essentially called you know marriage a a, a form of of uh, jail. I mean th- these kind of things where she's completely rejecting traditional society because it doesn't fit her, right? So she thinks that all of this should change because of her worldview. There's a kind of myopic hubris there. I mean, this this is important because I'm going to get into a piece that George Will wrote at the Washington Post that talks about the historian as activist, or activist, I should say, as historian, which is more important. But this myopic hubris and this rejection, this kind of petulant teenagership (laughs) that comes out of many of these activist historians. They never grow up. They never grow up. Even if they say they're being mature and reflective, they never grow up. The fact that some of them do the things they do shows that they've never grown up and they've never really accepted that they cannot control all of society. And that's important. You see, if... They can't do what they want to do, so they push it on the rest. And this is the activist, right? the activist who has nothing else to do but wrings their hands all day long. And it's, I'll use the term again, it's a Yankee mentality. It is a busybody, do-gooder type of mentality. And you find these people not just in New England. I've used that term and people think, oh, you're talking only about New Englanders. No, no, no. I'm talking about a particular type of American, an American mentality that you'll find just about anywhere in the United States. Even in the South, you have them there. The, the do-gooder that has to wring their hands and think, this has to be changed, that has to be changed, this has to be done, that has to be done. And the question would become, why? I mean, ultimately, why? Why does it have to be done? Uh, and 
uh, why would you disrupt? Now, we can say that some of these changes, looking back in the 21st century, maybe we like some of these changes. Maybe we think some of these changes were necessary. Maybe we think some of these changes were vital to the betterment of society, whatever the case may be. But there is a certain type of cultural dislocation that takes place in this. There's a certain type of family dislocation that takes place in this. A rejection, a teenage type of rejection that leads to some of these things. So let me get into this George Will piece. And it's about Drew Gilpin Faust. Now, if you don't know who Drew Gilpin Faust is, for a long time, well, for about a decade, she was president of Princeton University. She's been called one of the most, one of the top 50 most important women in the United States, most powerful women in the United States. That suits her personality. That suits her busybody type of personality. And she's written a book that is reflective. It's an autobiography. Now, just think about that. Why would this person, who is a historian, she has a PhD in history. She made a name for herself as a historian. And then, of course, she later became you know, president of Princeton. But why would she even, why would even anybody want to read uh, an autobiography of Drew Gilpin Faust? Now, other historians have written autobiographies. I mean, don't get me wrong. This, this happens. They, have a ref they reflect on their career and what happens in history. And, but generally, those things are read by historians. This is supposed to be a popular coming-of-age story, almost. Uh, a, a critique and a reflection on mid-century America. You see, Drew Gilpin Faust focused on Southern history, and her most famous works are uh, books on Southern women, on the war. She also brought James Henry Hammond to infamy. She wrote a biography of James Henry Hammond. And again, just by picking James Henry Hammond, you realize what she's trying to do. You see, she grew up in a household that admired the South. Her mother wanted her to be a Southern belle. Her father rode around with Robert E. Lee as a hood ornament. She, she grew up in a family that loved the South, that loved the Southern tradition, that loved Southern society, that loved Southern culture. By picking James Henry Hammond and writing a biography of James Henry Hammond, she's thumbing her nose at all of that. Now, James Henry Hammond, if you don't know, was one of the most despicable people, at least personally, that's ever uh, been in power in the South. He was downright awful. Now, he did keep getting elected to various positions, and I think that was her thumbing her nose. Well, look at these despicable people that all these supposedly conservative and upright people keep electing or keep putting into positions of power. And James Henry Hammond is a nice example of that. The guy had a terrible personal life. He did awful things. The Hamptons in South Carolina, uh, you know, to, to, which was part of his family. I mean, he did just terrible things to them. Right, ruined the reputation of several women. He was just a despicable person. By choosing James Henry Hammond, what she has done is said, this is the Southern tradition. This is what Southerners are. He's not an exception. He's the rule, you see. He's the rule. That's what you start to think. And this is what I've said about historians, particularly on the left, what they do is elevate people who might have been marginal or insignificant or maybe sensational or fantastic, the odd, to positions that make you think they are the norm, you see. 
James Henry Hammond becomes the norm. James Henry Hammond becomes the quintessential Southerner. Not Robert E. Lee. Not George Washington. <laughs> not those people. Not people that pe actually you know, were considered to be, well, this is someone that we should try to emulate. No. It's James Henry Hammond. Now, James Henry Hammond was a Southerner. James Henry Hammond had positions that a lot of Southerners agreed with. There's no doubt about this. And he was a despicable person in his own personal life. He was a strong pro-slavery advocate. If you go out and look at James Henry Hammond, what she has done in that, okay, so she's growing up in the 1950s, and you think there's this lost cause and all this stuff, and I have to punch holes in all of that. I have to punch holes in it. It's my job to tear it down, not to try to understand it, not to try to figure out what this thing is. And sometimes, you know, when you read her books, they can be fairly sympathetic. But she has an agenda. She is an ardent leftist, and she is trying to tear it all down. Uh, so Gilpin Faust made a name for herself writing Southern intellectual history. In fact, you know, her first book was uh, uh, kind of an intellectual history of the Old South. Um, she wrote a lot about Southern slave owners. The book that I was first introduced to Drew Gilpin Faust on was uh, a book she wrote uh, in... Um, in the 1980s, the creation of Confederate nationalism, where she says that that was just a farce. There wasn't really anything there to that. I mean, this identity as a Southerner was created by the war. People didn't think of themselves as that. There wasn't this, you know, but it was kind of a creation. They had to create this during the war. And it was all around the institution of slavery and race. That's what was the glue that held the South together. If you took that away... They would just be good Americans just like everybody else. You see, this is the whole point of this. She is trying to tear down this image, this myth to her of people that were dedicated to limited government, to federalism, to you know, anti-tariff. Anti the, the whole goal in all of this is to say that what underlies all of that, what undergirds the whole system is race and slavery. That's it. There's nothing else. That's all it's about. If you can just tear everything down to its base, that's what it is. On the flip side of that, you'd have to ask, well, what was the North's dedication to banking and internal improvements and you know tariffs and all this? Was it anti-slavery? Well, no. So you have to look at these things in you know different ways. But Faust would uh, write a book that uh, became, it still is, cited as one of the best books ever on Southern women. Uh, it's uh, Mothers of Invention is the title of the book. And along with um, uh, Genovese, uh, Elizabeth Fox Genovese. I mean, if you look at the two books that people cite and people go to, and this book came out in 96, right about the time I was uh, getting into graduate school. It was, um, I mean, people talked about it all over the place. But of course, the Genoveses, I think, wrote a better intellectual history than Drew Gilpin Faust, much more sympathetic in a way that wasn't uh, hagiographic, but certainly interested in the South for, its, for itself, for its own sake. Faust was looking to tear it down. And that's clear. It becomes clear when you read what, of course, uh, George Will, who writes this column, says about Drew Gilpin Faust. Now, George Will is very sympathetic with Faust. Uh, George Will is not on the right. People think he is. He's a leftist, just like Drew Gilpin Faust. I'll never forget the story of, uh, of uh, George Will going to South Carolina and trying to figure out this 
Tom DiLorenzo thing. He went down and, and met with Clyde Wilson down there and wanted to interview Clyde about uh, Lincoln and DiLorenzo, and he just couldn't understand this disdain conservatives had for Abraham Lincoln, St. Abraham the Wise, who would be, in Faust's world, very important. You see, as I mentioned uh, this last week with Akhil Lamar and this piece that was in National Review and how the leftist heroes are the same heroes of the right, when you merge those two together, what are you left with? There's no conservatism because, and, and look, people like Faust and people like Amar know this. If their heroes are your heroes and you're a conservative, they know it. They know what they have just done. They've transformed American conservatism into American leftism. And they know they win that game. So when you tear down people in the past that we've seen as conservative, because you have a petulant temper tantrum, you don't like what you grew up in, well then, and you want to tear all that down, well then what you have done is just replace it with something else. So let me read this George Will piece. He says, The nation is awash with heated and ungenerous judgments about its past and about Americans who lived before we ascended to today's sunny uplands of enlightenment. Now that's a funny situation for George Will to say that. It's almost like he doesn't really like what these people are doing, but I'm not so certain about that. I'm not so certain about that. I mean, he is... Certainly in that sentence, it might make you think that he wants to understand these people better in the past, that he's not trying to pass judgment on them, that he's not trying to do anything that would uh, throw, you know, cast shade on them. I, I'm not, George Will is as guilty of this as anybody. If you look at a lot of the things that George Will has said about Southerners, for example, he even does it in this piece. So for your final summer read, try something tonally different. Drew Gilpin Faust's memoir, Necessary Trouble, Growing Up at Mid-Century. It concerns not her presidency of Harvard from 2007 to 2018, but her coming of age in the 50s and 60s. She was a high-octane student, activist, involved in dangerous civil rights campaigning in the Deep South before becoming hyperactive and agitating against U.S. involvement in Vietnam. Now, I mentioned, where does the activist historian come from? Well, here. When I was a graduate student, I had a, the chair of the department at the time tell us that the reason he became a historian was because of the 1960s. Because, and the reason he became a leftist was because of reading history. Which is fascinating. I think it started before that, and I told him that. And I think there was, he was, it, it began before. Now you could say that Faust, well she grows up in this very conservative household, it's a rejection of what you grew up in. It's throwing a temper tantrum. That's why a lot of these people become leftists. They reject what they don't like, and then they try to find something to fit it and shove it in people's faces all the time. This is why you're wrong. This is why you don't like it. There was a story that someone told me of Elizabeth uh, uh, Pryor, um, who wrote the book Reading the Man on Robert E. Lee. And she was at a meeting. This is before she was killed in a car accident. She was at a meeting where there was some discussion about taking down Confederate symbols and Confederate monuments and these kind of things. And some people got up and spoke very highly of, uh, of Lee. And her response was, she berated them. She berated them. You don't know him like I do. You don't know this. You don't know that. Even though she tries to be very sympathetic and uh, you read the book, oh, this is the... She, she despised it. She wanted to tear it down. And I think that 
We miss a lot of that in our discussions of things. She wanted to tear it down. That's what Drew Gilpin Faust is trying to do. She's trying to tear things down. Now, her anti-war stance is interesting. There were a lot of 1960s leftists who were certainly anti-war. They weren't committed to it because if you look at what these 1960s leftists did when they got into power, they certainly became very interested in war. <laughs> so that part of her life is interesting, this, uh, this anti-war situation. Will says she is, however, an accomplished historian, and her book in, is most interesting and needed as a mellow, humane acceptance of an enduring truth from a forgotten novel. The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Faust has gone back to a foreign country, America, when post-1945 conventions and complacencies began to crumble, has returned with a needed gift for today's nation, example of mature assessment. What is Faust, I mean, what has Will just done there? He's accepted, he believes that all these things should have happened. Mature assessment. A justification, a hubris is more like it. That's what she's doing. Why would anyone want to read this to begin with, is my question. Why do we care what Drew Gilpin Faust thinks about these things? We shouldn't. It's it's dime a dozen 1960s radical that wants to tell their story and how they were they grew up in this and they grew up in that. Look, I turned, I came from this and I became this, and this is what you can do. It's uninteresting, really. Uh, but this is where these people come from. When you talk about activists who are masquerading as historians, this is why. They have a worldview that needs to be satisfied by the telling of the story so they can thumb their nose at everything. This is what these people like to do, and they love the attention in it. They love to thumb their nose at everything that's conventional. And maybe one day, I don't know, people on the right will be seen as the same kind of thing because... Convention becomes the left. In some ways, we're getting to that point. Or if you just have traditional, you say, well, there's this traditional historian saying this, here's this traditional historian saying that. Here's you know, these positions which would have been seen as normal 20 or 30 years ago. Now they're the abnormal because we've conventionalized Drew Gilpin Faust. What she doesn't understand is that she's actually speaking for the conventional now. George Will, in praising it, is speak, speaking for the conventional. And you look at the comments on this. There's 400 comments on this, but they all say the same thing. Well, you know, this is, uh, I'm, I'm, I mean, yes, I agree with all these things she's saying. This is, it's, it's become the norm. Now, of course, the Washington Post is a left-wing paper, and George Will is a left-winger, but I digress. He says, Faust was born into a prosperous family in the caste system of segregated Virginia, a society thick with rules and roles governing, actually suffocating young white women and all black people. This is George Will's words. This is not Drew Gilpin Faust. This is George Will. Suffocating. Faust was suffocated. She was suffocated because she was sent to private schools <laughs> and grew up in a very well-to-do middle-class life. That's suffocating. Now, who says that kind of stuff? Well, 19th century feminists. Blue stockings. Not, not people like Augusta Jane Evans who would say this is not suffocating at all. It's liberating. You have power in this and you don't even realize it yet. But that's what George Will says. And that's what Drew Gilpin Faust says. You see, it's subtle. But these are the kind of things that, that you get out of this, right? Suffocating. They were entrapped. Entrapped. 
in not altogether dissimilar ways, in the viscosity of a society defined by strict racial and gender expectations that were unarticulated because they were unquestioned. You see, it's important to question these traditional things. George Will is not a traditionalist. This is Chesterton. You know, why do we have this fence here? Well, I mean, to ask the question is fine, but then to try to tear it down when you don't really ask the question or don't know why it's there is important. You just tear it down because you don't like it. And that's what Faust decided she was going to do. And again, she's going to thumb her nose by picking things and picking topics that will be uh, damaging to the people that loved her the most in some ways. And that's the sad thing about all of this. It's damaging to the things that made her who she is. And that's what happens with these people. And they don't realize it. They grew up, they're, they're, they're miserable. I'm not so sorry, I don't know Drew Gilpin Faust. But you almost get a sense of misery. And they're miserable because there's no acceptance. There's no kind of stoicism in this. It all just has to be torn down and I have to remake it. I have to tell you why and I have to tell you this and I have to do that. There's no acceptance. And it has to be done. And these were things that necessary trouble, right? Faust's family rode to hounds and sent children north to Tory prep school, or Tony prep schools, I'm sorry, universities. She did. She was educated in New England. Rode to hounds, right? They went hunting. They were Virginia society. And they had money, and they sent her away. And this is what they got. But from an early age, Faust was intelligent. Well, why would someone in the South from this family not be intelligent? I mean, it's almost like Will is surprised by that. <laughs> Opinionated. Inexhaustibly curious, a voracious reader, and disconcerting to her determinedly conventional mother. I mean, this is... Her mother doesn't like this. You see, her mother's trying. But what's happening? It's being undone by the society in which she lives. It's being undone. And she's throwing a temper tantrum. She doesn't like her mother. She doesn't like her mother telling her what to do. I'm not going to do what my mother tells me. I'm not going to be my mother. What is that? A mother who was trying to nurture her and have her grow up in society, and traditional society, wasn't going to be that way. This is a teenager. Drew Gilpin Faust is in a state of arrested development. She's never grown up. It's not mature. It's arrested development. A high school counselor right of Miss Gilpin's bewilderment in connection with Drudy's intellectual gifts. Drew's mother is like a hen that has hatched a duckling. It cannot understand having a daughter who is not going to be a southern belle. A school counselor. Well, I wonder how that school counselor knew that. I wonder how that school counselor who would then foster some things to try to reject. This is the situation of schooling. Try to reject traditional, the traditional mother and say, Drew, you need to do this. Faust would not be, as that era expressed its aspiration, well-adjusted. She would reject it. I remember talking to my grandmother about this, about the same age as these people. She's, in, I was criticized in the 1960s. She said, well, they were our children. We, we, did, we messed up. We didn't try to do more to stop some of this stuff. Least of all adjusted to a society in which the chivalric protection of women was, Faust writes, inextricably tied to concessions of frailty and incapacity. The chivalric protection of women. She rejects it, right? You see what's happening here? She rejects the things that had made society work at that time as being 
bad. It's a man's world and a white world, and she didn't like any of that. That's what she wrote. She didn't like any of that, right? It was, uh, it had to be rejected. It had to be torn down. She had to find ways to punch holes in it. And so she started getting involved in what she's called, or John Lewis called, necessary trouble. She went down south. Uh, you know, she uh, took place, went to Mississippi, went to Birmingham. And she did this because she read books. She said, he, uh, uh, Will says, Faust relished rock music, which was saturated with sexuality. Pat Boone and Frankie Avalon elbowed aside by Elvis and Little Richard. But books were most catalyzing. The 36 volumes published before 1960 about an independent and resourceful 16-year-old Nancy Drew were formative. Also for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Nancy Pelosi, Sandra Day O'Connor, and others. Faust had never, at least as far as I know, met a Jewish person when she met through a diary, an adolescent who was an avid reader and aspiring writer, Anne Frank, scouted the eight-year-old daughter of Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird, exemplified for Faust's children seeing clearly. Right, So these people are rejecting, they're seeing clearly, they're rejecting tradition, they're seeing clearly, they don't like tradition. They're not fitting with the, con with the conventions. This is important to understand. Faust is writing... A very uninteresting book because this is, again, boilerplate 1960s arrested development radicals who didn't like the society in which they grew up in and they had to tear it down and they had to do everything they could to tear it down and figure out a way to do that because to them it was suffocating, as George Will says. It's suffocating to go to private school. It's suffocating to grow up with things. It's suffocating for Drew Gilpin Faust. Now, you can make an argument that Certainly black Americans faced a whole host of different situations than Drew Gilpin Faust in the 1950s and 40s and 60s. But Faust, this is where, you know, someone like, I started talking about people like Augusta Jane Evans and Mercy Otis Warren and some of these others. This is where they would say, you're just confused. It's interesting when the women go back and forth against each other. It's, it's a very interesting dialogue. And of course, someone like uh, Evans be highly critical of the leftist women, the communists, and the reformers, because she saw them for what they were, just spoiled, petulant children who had a state of arrested development. They didn't like the society that was built to essentially protect them. And that's what Faust decided to reject. Now, It's an interesting piece, and I didn't. It's a short piece. I didn't read the rest of it, but that's what we're getting at here with Drew Gilpin Faust. That's where these activists come from. They want to reject the things that they don't like because they think by doing this, it's going to make things better for them, and they're rejecting in some ways their own paternity. They don't like that. So uh, the 1960s radicals. This was all tied into that. All right. See you next time with the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.